Have you ever experienced a dry, itchy scalp or ever wondered why your color isn't lasting as long as your hairdresser promised? Well, unfiltered, mineral-filled water could be the reason why. Did you know hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin? And that about 85% of the United States uses hard water filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, Canopy is dermatologist recommended. This unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free, installation's a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement. Go to canopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, Gore listeners can use our code ROSES at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. If you are a wine lover like myself and you gotta have it for your bachelor reviewing parties, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. I found the personalized the most personalized wine club that has amazing wines and exclusive perks called First Leaf. As a First Leaf member, you get to try new wines and I'm guaranteed to enjoy them because they got to know my unique preferences. I answered a few questions on their website, this quiz about the flavors you like, how often you drink wine, Monday nights, if you prefer red, white, or rosé. And based on these, it gives you this amazing selection of wines tailored just for you. And when you rate those wines, it gets even more tailored, a la, you know, uh, Netflix. Just play into the algorithm. My algorithm got me both rosé and white wine, Mm. my favorites, and they were so delicious, and I've gotten to enjoy them with many of my, my friends. Look, being part of the First Leaf Wine Club also has perks. As a member, you get access to their incredibly helpful wine concierge, So if you want uh, wine pairing advice or you want to talk about the wines in your box, you can always talk to one of their experts. Plus, you get member exclusive pricing. What's in the box? On every order. Join the club today and discover new wines you'll love with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash roses to get your first box. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F dot com slash roses try firstleaf.com slash roses creams and serums are made of 70 percent water 15 percent preservatives and emulsifiers leaving only around 15 percent for the active ingredients that your skin needs but luckily now there's fiber skincare 15 years ago, the scientists behind fiber skincare started working on nanofibers, which are 500 times smaller than human hair. You know, I I saw that in um, Three Body Problem. Mm. One year ago, they patented a way of wrapping the nanofiber around oil or liquid-based ingredients. This means they can deliver five times the active ingredients compared to creams or serums, as there is no need for water, preservatives, or emulsifiers. The first formulation made with this technology is plant-based, anti-wrinkle. Uh, it's a set of patches that you use over a series of seven days. You just put these on whenever you would apply your serums, and your skin is going to feel tighter in 10 seconds. And over the seven-day oh. program, it has been clinically proven to reduce wrinkles by, get this, 19.4%, a very precise percentage. In fact... Mm. They have a tighter skin guarantee. 
If your skin isn't tighter in seven days, they're going to give you your money back. No questions asked. You get the tighter skin guarantee with this seven-day routine. Tighter skin or your money back. Get a 15% discount code by using the discount code GAME. That's Fiber Skincare. It's the Game of Roses. Welcome to the Game of Roses. This is the Game of Roses. Welcome to the Game of Roses. Welcome to Clues Week. This is Bachelor Clues, and this week, I'm running the ship solo. Pace Case is away on a much-deserved vacation, getting some rest and relaxation down in the La Quinta sun. That's right. Pace Case is in the very area where Dale Moss destroyed the game to win the ring on last season of Bachelorette. And while she's gone, I am taking this opportunity to go into places we have never gone. And this show is the first attempt in that direction. Today, I have a very special guest who is going to have a conversation with me about cryptocurrency, NFTs, tax law surrounding it, the evolution of entertainment, television, music, the internet, and where we are headed as a society where things like digital currency, artificial intelligence, and quantum computing are concerned. But before I get into any of that, I must remind you, there is only one week left for you to order a brand new, for the right reasons, Gore shirt. You can get these shirts right now by going to bonfire.com slash Game of Roses, B-O-N-F-I-R-E.com slash Game of Roses. This shirt is a beautiful design by Ella Tolkien. The Dark Seeker helped us put all of this together. And this shirt is not just a t-shirt. It is a wearable conversation piece that you're going to want to have on when you go to your next viewing party, which is going to be happening in about a month and a half for the next season of Bachelorette. When you walk into that viewing party, every head in the room is going to turn and be like, wait a minute, what's that shirt? What does that mean? And then you get the pleasure of dragging them into the pit. So if you want to have an experience like that, you need to go to bonfire.com slash Game of Roses and pick up a shirt one week left, and then they are gone forever. So as everybody knows, a couple of weeks ago, I did an episode all about NFTs and cryptocurrency, and I got some things massively wrong in that episode, especially where taxes are concerned where cryptocurrency uh, is regarded. So someone out there in the world took note of this episode. His name is Peter Riley. He is a writer for Forbes, and he wrote a whole article about how wrong I got the tax stuff. That article is titled Bachelor Clues Tax Observations on Crypto, Not to be Relied on, and we are humbled. We are blessed to have... Peter here with us right now. Thank you for being with us in the pit, Peter. Oh, sure. You know, uh, you're very gracious, you know. <laughs> no, I look, I can't thank you enough for writing that article because I don't 
know everything about crypto. I don't know everything about NFTs. All of this stuff is still a burgeoning industry. It's massive change to the financial system, all this kind of stuff. So I'm learning as I go. And um, everyone should go check out Peter's article if they want to know exactly about crypto taxes and all that kind of stuff. And we're definitely going to get to talking about that. But before we get into any of that, I want to just kind of give some little piece of information about you. Sure. So this is from your bio on the Forbes website. I'm just going to read verbatim your bio. Okay. I've been a CPA for over 30 years, focusing on taxation. I have extensive experience with partnerships, real estate, and high net worth individuals. My ideology can be summarized, at least metaphorically, by this quote. I have a total irreverence for anything connected with society, except that which makes the road safer, the beer stronger, the food cheaper, and the old men and old women warmer in the winter and happier in the summer. This is a quote by Brendan Behan, an Irish poet and novelist who was a member of the IRA and did prison time for it in the late 30s, early 40s. Actually, I just love that quote. Um, uh, I've got one book by Brendan Behan, and there was a play that was made. Um, the, actually, I think he was, he was the author of it, and it's just, it was extremely memorable. I saw it when I was like, I don't know, 17 or so. I just love that play, and um, I, I love I love I love that quote. I have a, a book that Bean wrote about uh, being in New York. Uh, other than that, I'm not a serious Brendan Bean scholar. So. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I was just curious. I mean, yeah. he comes with him certain uh, things that are known about his life. Obviously, he was a member of the IRA. That's an interesting fact. So I was like, all right, I can kind of see a little bit of where your ideologies might align out of that. You have 38 Instagram followers, but 6,930 Twitter followers. So you do have some kind of a social media presence, which is pretty interesting. And Let's start somewhere that I think we have to start every story at, because I'm curious about how you've come to this point in your life, how you got interested in tax, how you started writing about money, what the idea of money means to you. So let's start at the very beginning. Where and when were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in Englewood, New Jersey. Actually, that's just what a hospital was. I grew up in the town of Fairview, New Jersey. Uh, which is uh, right across the river from Manhattan. Um, and I was born in uh, 1952. My dad was also born in 52. Okay, yeah. I just turned 69. Same with my dad. Okay. So what were some of your favorite TV shows and movies and music and stuff like that growing up when you were a little kid, like grade school, junior high? Well, you, you know, I really liked World War II stuff. Like I was, I was into history at a very... At a very uh, early early age, uh, but you know there there weren't that many choices, right? Okay, living in the metro New York area, I'm sorry, it was like two, four, five, seven, nine, eleven, and thirteen. You had seven TV channels. Living in the metro New York area was which was like huge, right? And they were all black and white too, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even well, and you know, color TVs came in um, in the '60s, but we weren't real prosperous. I remember the first time I saw a color TV, I was uh, delivering newspapers, and I I was collecting. This woman opened the door, and it was a color TV with 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 a cartoon on it. It was like I'm saying, "Whoa!" Uh, so that was probably in uh, around 1964 or so. You've basically seen the entire evolution of television throughout the course of your life, oh, from infancy yeah. to what we have now. 
there's a there's an early phase that you know uh, a very early phase in the early 50s that you know uh, everybody talked about how television there was this golden age of television going up to like 1955 or something and that was because televisions were extremely expensive and so they they were some of the shows I think early on were oriented towards a higher level uh, audience, but go ahead. You've essentially witnessed, like you said, seven channels, all black and white, to the advent of color TV, to cable television expanding the channel base, to now what we have, endless streaming, 24 hours a day of anything you yeah. can possibly want to watch, and there's so much to watch that you can never have a chance at watching all of it. Tell me, what are your favorite TV shows and pieces of media throughout all time? And then also tell me what you're watching now. Okay. Uh, the the first one is the first question is is uh, is is easier. Right now, where uh, my partner and I, we watch, uh, we'll tend to watch two series on on Netflix or Amazon Prime. You know, we don't watch every night, but then we'll say, oh, we want to watch tonight, and then sometimes we'll watch a movie. But right now, we're watching the Irregulars and Hinterland. And what is your favorite TV show of all time, if I may ask, or or in the top three or five? One that that is has an indelible effect on you oh boy actually i like um nypd blue um and seinfeld although i got in i got into that later um i have a certain affection for law and order and its various iterations everything's popping in my head like 12 o'clock high i mean <laughs> uh combat do you watch any reality tv no not uh zero well not, you know, close to, yeah, close to zero. <laughs> okay. Uh, Did you watch in the 70s a show called An American Family on PBS, or were you aware of it? Yeah, I was aware of it. I think I watched a couple of episodes of it. I, I have this, this odd gap about television. You know, I, I graduated from high school in 1970 and went to college, yeah. okay, and didn't have much access to, access to, uh, to television. And, uh, you know, then I, then I, I went to, um, I was a VISTA volunteer. I went to graduate school. And uh, until I got married in 1978, I didn't, like, watch any, watch television at all. You, you know, so, so to me, okay, the new shows are the ones, you know, after 1970. <laughs> Right. So, so like Charlie's Angels or MASH, you know. The, uh-huh. You know, I didn't, Those are the I, new I, shows. I wasn't watching it. I, like I wasn't w- watching MASH contemporaneously that much. So, so to me, it's a recent show. And also there's an incredible, there's an incre- if, you, if you pay attention, there's an incredible change in production value starting in the late 70s mm-hmm. uh, com- compared to the 60s, both in movies and TV. Yeah, sure. The technology has always been evolving. But I mean, you lived through some of the most important moments in television history, like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Did you watch that? No, I didn't like the Beatles. Interesting. What kind of music are you into? Let's, uh, <laughs> let's get into that. So, so as, a, as, a, as a teenager, you know, I'd listen to top 40 rock and, rock and roll, that type of stuff. But I really liked, uh, I really liked folk music. And and then some some uh, FM stations. That was you know that was like a thing. It was FM was a big deal. And um, uh, my 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 buddy Bobby Einhorn uh, got me into uh, the Mothers of Invention. 
Um, and uh, I like listening to, I liked a lot of the, the you know, the, the folk revival movement, uh, Tom Paxton, John Baez, uh, uh, that, that type. I was more into that. And I used, used to listen, I, I listened to, uh, not that this is music, but I listened to Gene Shepard um, on WOR. You know the Christmas story? Sure. Oh, okay. Okay. So, 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 so there was a, it was kind of a little nerdy thing. There was a bunch of adolescents that would, that would listen to him every night. Um, it was on 45 minutes. And the reason I ask all this is because I'm always fascinated with people who have grown up in different generations and how the notion of fame has affected them, how media has affected them growing up how you've kind of like related to the world through any of these things. So when you see the Beatles start to come up, which at that point was a level of fame, literally no human being had ever had on planet earth. And then that continues through, uh, you know, the eighties with people like Madonna, Michael Jackson, these kind of pop culture icons. And now fame has become something completely different where it exists on social media primarily. And you don't really have to even be a musician or an actor or do any skill you can just do social media. I'll challenge you on, the, on that thing about the Beatles. When Lafayette arrived in New York in 18, on August 6th, 1824, more people came out for him than came out for the Beatles. Sure, but there wasn't a television broadcasting that That's event true, across the entire the world. country, and every town he showed up in, there was a crowd out there. And if you look at the history of that town, that's the biggest thing that happened in that town. In the uh... <laughs> yeah, certainly pre-television, fame had a whole different thing. Yeah. You had to actually go to places and <laughs> get people to come out and look at you. But uh, I'm always just curious to know, you know, like where people stand with these kinds of things and how media is moving. So you mentioned going to college. You go to college. You get your degree. What was the experience like when you were in college in terms of politics and where the country was in the early 70s? The main thing was about the Vietnam War when I was an under, when, I, when, I, when I was an undergraduate. Um, you know, there were there were de demonstrations and uh, um, my my college wasn't. You know, I went to the college at Holy Cross in Worcester, Mass, and there were um, there were a lot of demonstrations and that that type that type of stuff going on. It was interesting times um, uh, in that regard. But Vietnam probably. Uh, overwhelmed everything uh i would say that that was probably the big not not that the you know not the other issues weren't important and there was also you know what they what what they called at the time women's liberation uh, you know and there were a lot of things going on that i know about now that you know didn't get through the popular con consciousness like radical feminism or um uh you know that but but that, that was probably uh, Stonewall, for example. My high school was a few blocks from Stonewall, and that, that didn't register with me when that happened at all. You know, it's like, you know, now it's this great event. It happened like a few blocks from my, my high school, although also a few blocks from my high school, there was a townhouse um, that uh, some of the weathermen blew up the house. You know, they, they were fixing, they were trying to make bombs, and they didn't. They really shouldn't have been doing that. They should have had somebody with some more technical training if they were going to make bombs. And they blew up this this house. That was a few blocks from my high school. So, And this is all in the years immediately after Kennedy getting assassinated as well, right? Yeah. Yes, there's, there's that. And then there's also, 
um, uh, you know, also I was brought up Catholic and you had the, the Vatican II and the controversy about birth control. All right. So you go to college. All this this is kind of the state of the world at this point. Right. Everything's in turmoil. We're in one of the longest, worst wars that our country will ever be in. And you graduate. You get your first job. What is that job? I was in Vista. We um, and actually I, I, I applied for the Peace Corps and got turned down. And um, we actually we had a student volunteer group that help different places in, in uh, Worcester that was by the Worcester Regional, um, uh, it's, it's a re this joint thing, a consortium of higher education. And uh, a couple of us who were part of student volunteer group got them to sponsor a uh, VISTA project. So there were three VISTA volunteers who were helping to get the student volunteer group, uh, you know, more better organized and stronger. It was uh, it's hard to say whether it was the poor planning or the poor execution that trumped it, but that's 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 what I <laughs> that's what I was what, can you this, explain what this is? Hmm? Vista Volunteers in Service to America. It's a federal program. It still it still exists. It's not yeah, it's not as big. It was like there was the Peace Corps and that was started in 1962 or so, something like that. And then a few mm -hmm. years later, they said, oh, let's have something like the Peace Corps in the United States. Then I, then I went to graduate school for a year, University of Chicago um, in uh, history. And that didn't go so well. But <laughs> my, I was a history major. And I had these friends at Holy Cross who were like accounting majors. And they got these really good jobs. And, you know, they didn't seem all that smart. So, so I said, oh, I'll do that as a backup plan. And um, so then I, I went to, after graduate school, I um, went to college at, at night. I went to Quinsigamond Community College and um, Clark University, and I got a second bachelor's degree in accounting. And then I was working in um, uh, public accounting. I worked as a hotel night auditor and uh, as a, like a controller for a travel company before I went into public accounting. But numbers, money have always interested you or you just got interested in them because you saw your friends getting jobs that were stable, lucrative, and you were like, I can yeah. get into that, well, too. Was, you know, kind of clean work, no heavy lifting, good money. You know, that was that was pretty much. And, and I did I did get interested in accounting. It's 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 a way of thinking. And this is in the mid 70s to late 70s. So you're using pads of paper, pencils, adding machines, things of that nature to keep yeah. the books, yeah. green, right? Green paper with columns pencils uh we photo yeah yeah so and um and um yeah adding adding machines although cal calculators were by the time i was um starting calculators were more common um than 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 adding machines you you know you, you must you probably never fooled with one but uh i remember the first time i saw a calculator um the girl i was dating i was visiting around colorado and her mother um my mother was a math teacher, and he showed me, she showed me this calculator. It was like I was just amazed. And, and I was saying to people, you know, it's like, you know, slide rules are obsolete now. And everybody's saying, no, nah, no, nah, you're still <laughs> 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 And, and, and it, I had the same type, you know, I, I, I had the same type of vision with computers. Like we got the first couple of, um, uh, we had K-Pros. You remember them? I I have a K-Pro 3000 sitting in my closet right yeah, now. Yeah, we had two K-Pros, and 
and we started doing stuff with that and and you know it was it was re- it was really it was really it was really you know handy and and um I said to one of the this is like maybe 1982 and 1983 and this is at a job you had where you guys yeah. got these computers yeah at, in our accounting firm okay you know we we started right modern, you know it's like so so somebody wheels in this first K pro they sit it on the table and all of you gather around, I assume. What is that experience like? This is the first computer you've ever seen at that point? No, because I learned I learned computer programming. I was I was getting um at night I was getting a master's in applied mathematics with a concentration in computer science in computer science. And and when I was in um uh when I was going to graduate school, I was gonna get into this uh thing that was called Cleometrics, which is at, you know, kind of a lot of mathematics and history. So I've learned computer programming like Fortran and Pascal, Cobol, uh, all that stuff. Yeah, and, and we had a computer. We had a computer, but it was, um, um, you know, just for running payroll, and uh, it wasn't. There was a barrier between the accountants and the computer. Uh, you know, the, so 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 when we got the KPRO, it was limited use and. You know, we do it for certain th- for certain computations, and it made made things a lot easier. And eventually, uh, uh, it made things so much easier that we start, we we made it a staff member, and we gave it a. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was going to be my next question. Was there any point at which you and your colleagues were like, "Shit, we're going to be replaced by computers"? Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think so. I realized that uh, actually I was probably the only person who thought like that because um, that, you know, that I knew because uh, management in account in accounting firms was really attached to this, this upper out, uh, this upper out pyramid. In other words, you have a, a, a whole bunch of junior accountants and then you, you, you kind of, there'd be fewer and fewer and then you have a partner and, and, the, and the, the, the whole thing is about having leverage. So that you're you're facing the client and doing stuff, but then there's all these other people who are who are who are uh, working for you, and it's it's like everything that we did at the entry level was automated by 1990, uh, and but but they still wanted to have the pyramid. <laughs> Yeah, once a system is in place that's funneling money to a group of people, those people are not going to let that system fail. Yeah, it was. It was still. It's like you want to make money, and 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 every once in a while you run into somebody who's doing all sorts of great stuff, and you don't have anybody working for him because you know. Um, so I was I, I was too. It was an old firm, and it took you know it took a long time to, uh, um, you know get. We were a little behind the curve. Early, early on, I'd say not too far though. And did you ever fathom that that computer, that K Pro, would go from being what you saw to becoming a supercomputer that every one of us carries in our pockets at all times, that connects to a constantly growing umbrella of invisible signals that carry all the information in the world to anyone who wants it, and that is the least impressive thing computers now do. That's like the the bare minimum what we expect of computers. The 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 internet really threw me because because actually i i had had this i i thought they had a lot more potential you, you know i could see a lot of potential i'm saying oh wow you know i could have um i could have one book referencing another book you know it's it's like i could be reading a book and it'd be a footnote and i'd be able to go and see see the book that that footnote is in i i kind of 
but but I'm thinking that I'm thinking that you're going to have to have all these desks or something. Uh-huh. And I got involved in the internet a little earlier than uh, the firm did uh, because of a um, um, a, a not for profit organization. It's still around now. It's called Just Attention International, mm. and it was amazing because that that got that guy. He had um, on the board, there was somebody who was a, um, uh, doing AI at MIT. And so I, I had to get email in order to be in, on, <laughs> be in with these people. This is about 95. And uh, it had a website, and that gave it this tremendous presence. And it was like one guy in an apartment in Harlem. <laughs> you know, and he was, you know getting by on like, you know, dis- he was getting by on disability and the budget was probably like $10,000 uh, or something. And it seemed like this big organization. Uh, and that's what you had to get your first email account in order yeah, to yeah, yeah, interact yeah. with them? And then, and then, th- then the firm, you know, the, that was just a little, you know, it, it, that was 95 or so. And, and then by, uh, you know, within two or three years, it, it kind of became a necessity for everybody. Uh, it was like um, fax machines. <laughs> yeah. So, that, I mean, I, I used fax machines primarily when I was applying for jobs after I graduated from college, which was in 1999. Yeah. So I'm, I'm well aware of fax machines. What was your first email account, if I may ask? What uh, host was it on? I think it was AOL. The good old days. <laughs> okay. So you now have your email account. You know the internet exists. What was the first social media you saw? Friendster, MySpace? MySpace. Did you have a MySpace page? I had a MySpace account. And have you kept up with that? Do you now have a Facebook? You obviously have an Instagram. You obviously have a Twitter. I've got, so I got, I got, I have Facebook, Twitter, um, and LinkedIn uh, that I, that I actually keep up with. And a a couple of the others, I think I said, I'll sign up for this, look at it. And then I, like Instagram you mentioned, and I just, I never did anything with that. It's, it's, it's basically those three uh, is about all I can keep up with. And what do you think of social media? How do you view it in terms of what it has done to humanity? Well, overall, I think it's, overall, I'd say it's a really great thing um, in terms of the way it lets, um, uh, lets people uh, connect with one another. Do you perceive it in any way to be a version of immortality for the next kind of era of human beings? Because every post you make, all the data that you put on the internet will certainly outlive you. And at some point, there will very likely be algorithms that can take that data and make some facsimile of you to behave in the same way you would online and keep making posts in the style that you would. And so therefore, you kind of will live digitally forever. Yeah, that's it's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, it is kind of a, it's kind of an amazing thing to uh, uh, to to think about that. Although there's so many of us that you know, and you know, what point? Sometimes you know, as technology changes, you lose the ability to get older older stuff. I mean. Sure. Although you have, um, what's that uh, side? Um, the Wayback Machine. Right. Um, you know, I use, I'll use that a lot. Um, uh, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's all there. If you've made data, it is somewhere right now. And eventually, you know, we can look at the internet, we can Google whatever we want, but eventually with the advent of quantum computing, literally every piece of data you've ever made will be searchable. All your text messages, all your emails, anything you think is private will be 100% searchable by the public within 10 years. And so all that data is going to exist. There will be algorithms powerful enough, especially with the advent of quantum computing, to go through it all, make sense of it all contextually in terms of temporally, like when you said this tweet and what that meant in the broader Twitter sphere and what was going on at the time with hashtags and all that shit. And I think it will... Privacy is over, I think. Privacy, copyright, most human labor, we are at the tipping point of all those things being gone. There's just not going to be, we're, and we're going to get into NFTs here in a second, but there's not going to be any way to enforce copyright law when you have people just taking whatever image they want, making it an NFT, selling it for $10,000, and then it's like, yeah, come after me. If you even know who I am, because I've set up an anonymous <laughs> crypto account with just an email address. Yeah, actually, my, my, my posts on Forbes get uh, content scraped, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm very, self, I'm kind of self-absorbed, so I Google myself a lot. <laughs> okay and uh yeah you know and, and actually I'll, I'll 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 see that my um um that my posts get um get copied sometimes sometimes they'll mangle them a little uh, uh, it's I, I try to be careful about copyright um on my um forbes gives us a whole bunch of images to, to choose from but then when i i'll have the same post on my other uh i'll, I'll put it out like later on uh, your tax matters partner and uh there i'm always making sure i have you know public domain images you know i try i do my uh um i do my best to um to not to not violate copyright uh, but we're i mean we're really about five or ten years away from ai basically being able to write anything there are already text generation AIs right now, like GPT-3, for example, is kind of the big one that OpenAI created in San Francisco or in the Bay Area. You can just type in a sentence and it will fill in a novel for you. And right now it's like, it's not quite coherent, but it's not not coherent. Yeah. If you just take what it spits out and kind of go through it and tweak it a little bit, it's a workable, sellable novel or screenplay or whatever. In the next five or 10 years, I mean, if that's the wheel, eventually there's going to be a Ferrari and that Ferrari is going to be able to kick out any media we want, not just written. It'll be video. It'll be audio on a per person basis. You will be able to speak into your phone or whatever the phone becomes and say, I want a new season of Game of Thrones and it will just make it for you and it will make it for you, for no one else based on your preferences that it has you know, stored all the cookies and all the decisions you've ever made are in that phone. It will use those to give you exactly what you want. And then what, who's suing who in that scenario? Is it HBO who owns Game of Thrones or that's Warner Brothers? Are they going to then sue whoever built this AI that could be Netflix who's generating this? And then in what way does it have to be slightly different from Game of Thrones so that you can't even sue for copyright? If I change all the faces of the characters by 10% and their names get changed, is it still Game of Thrones? <laughs> you know? I, you know, I've thought about this like, um, say at some point in the future, will an educated person actually have to know how to read? I mean, because if you can go into a hollow deck and live Moby Dick or, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, 
why would you know why would you need to read it's it's not that particularly a rich way of um experience of experiencing things uh no it, it's absolutely not the only thing that reading is good for and that at this point i believe uh the written word is still good for is like hardcore storage of information. It still, I think, is the easiest way to pass information from generation to generation because you can sit down and read a whole textbook, but like watching a 12-hour video of whatever that textbook may contain yeah. is a little less efficient. But I agree with you. I mean, we are I don't know if you've seen what Elon Musk is doing with Neuralink right now. It's a implanted chip in your brain that allows you to interface with computers just using your mind. Yeah, I, I, met, I mentioned up. that there was that novel by Larry Niven. Uh, in um, uh, I, I can't, I can't. Oath of Fealty, I think it was called, and and that's that was the first reference to that concept. Uh, Certainly, there have been a lot of things written in the sci-fi world about you know the singularity, human beings merging with technology. But I mean, Elon Musk literally put out a video this week of a monkey who has the Neuralink chip in its brain playing Pong on a screen with nothing using its mind to play a video game so again if that's the wheel there's a ferrari coming and that's going to be all of us have this chip and we can interact directly with the internet without needing to read anything it'll be some form of a kind of i think uh, a technologically enhanced telepathy where instead of sending you a dm i'm just gonna think something at you and you'll hear it and then you'll think something back to me i think we'll get to that point in, I don't know how long that's going to take because there's also a, a pretty big barrier psychologically, I think, for most people about getting a chip, about having something implanted in their body. It's like we will all carry our phones around in our pocket 24 hours a day, but like that, having it in your body, I think some people are still a little hesitant about, but eventually there will be a generation that's not hesitant. Everyone will have it, and that's just how humanity will be. Yeah, maybe. I, if it, Unless it all falls apart, you know. Well, if it falls apart at this point, are we talking about like the internet falling apart? That's the end of humanity as far as I'm concerned. Or the end of like what we know humanity to be. We are now so plugged in that there's no going back. Right. right. I guess I guess the thing is, is if you had a civilizational collapse. Um, yeah. Some kind of post-apocalyptic hellscape yeah, i can right. see that happening actually, too. <laughs> sm did you have you ever read sm sterling no i have not yeah so he's got this thing it's it's called um the emberverse and um it's based on the thing it's like something just happens and electricity and anything with high pressure and explosives just stop working and so the so there's a there's a massive die-off of course and then the world goes back to essentially medi you know, medieval technology, the limits of medieval technology. But you still have educated people, so they know, like, hey, if you're going to have an army, you got to make sure you have sanitation. You know, so in other words, they 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 know they know things that people didn't know then that, that make things then different. And it imagines that um, uh, what that would be like, you know, how how that world. And there's all these different groups. Uh, the people who are in society for creative anachronism do really well. Yeah, I think that there's uh, always been kind of a fantasy with human beings to indulge the idea of a technological apocalypse. Unfortunately, the only thing in human history 
that is moving on an upward trajectory and it has never gone the other way is technology. Everything else comes and goes. We have times of peace, times of war. There are certain countries that are more socially progressive at times and then they become socially regressive. Money goes up and down. But uh, technology, it's just always marching forward. Uh, I would say after the end of the Roman Empire, uh, things kind of went backwards. Um, yeah, yeah. There, there have definitely been slow periods for sure. Yeah. But now where we're at, it's like there's just too much money in it. It's yeah. money is driving that industry more than any other. And so it's just going to be more AI. It's just going to be stronger computers. And all of that's going to come together in the next 10 or 15 years. I mean, I don't know if you read any Ray Kurzweil, but he predicted the singularity our complete merger with technology would be around 2045. And I'm like, I don't know. That might be a long prediction. It might happen way sooner than that because we're getting very close. Yeah, I, I did hear something that this, we're going to reach a point where life expectancy is going to go up by a year uh, in less than a year, every year. So, so that so you'll end up uh, like, you know, Heinlein with uh, Lazarus Long. Have you ever Heinlein much? Or? Totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, I was really into Heinlein. Um, as was I. Yeah. I'm I I love sci-fi. That was my favorite genre growing up. Isaac Asimov is like my favorite writer of all time. Yeah, you know, I just re I just reread the Foundation trilogy. I read it almost every year. It's <laughs> it's one of the best pieces of writing that has ever existed in my opinion. But okay, so now we know a little bit about you. Okay. We've talked about some science fiction. We've talked about future projections of technology. Now let's talk about what I actually wanted to talk about with you, which is cryptocurrency and taxes. So I had everything wrong where taxes on cryptocurrency are concerned. Can you fill us all in on how crypto is actually taxed? Well, crypto, uh, the IRS issued a ruling in uh, 2014. It's a there's a frequently asked questions um, thing that's up on um, irs.gov. And uh, what they ruled was that cryptocurrency is property, okay? Not, it's not currency. It's it, that would have made life simpler if they'd said, oh, well, it's just like French francs. OK, well, <laughs> we'll tax it. And not no, I said, no, it's 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 property. And under general tax principles, when you exchange one thing for another, you recognize gain. It doesn't have to run through money. So um, if um, Again, like everything else in tax, there is 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 exceptions. Uh, but if if I if I give you something in exchange for something else or in exchange for services, that's potentially an income um, generating uh, thing. So if somebody pays you in bitcoins, that's income to you. Well, and you just say, oh, well, we won't give you dollars. We'll give you bitcoins. That's income to you, and you value them. Uh, based based on dollars, and where it gets complicated then is is now you've got a piece of property in these bitcoins, and when you go out and spend the bitcoin, you're you're making an exchange. So, if the bitcoin were if you bought the bitcoin for a dollar and um, now it's worth two dollars, and you go buy a candy bar, in principle you recognize that gain of one dollar. Um, I mean, uh, obviously, at a very low noise level of things, you might not notice that. But the problem with 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 the blockchain 
is that everything that ever that's ever happened is there. <laughs> so it, if, if you forget about what the rules are, if you said, hey, uh, well, I, I, I'm not, I'm going to do what I want to do and the heck with them. Everything is recorded. It's like if, if you had this hundred dollar bill and it's like, it, it's written down every, <laughs> every, every wallet it's been in. Now, I'm not sure how possible it is to link the wallet. You know, people tell me, well, it's like you, you have a set, you have a whole bunch of wallets, but the thing is, is the transaction's been recorded that from this wallet to that wallet, this much went, and there it is. There's evidence that that transaction took place, and can you link somebody to it or not? And that that's you know, it's that'll be an arms race between the uh, between the IRS and people who are trying to hide 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 their transaction. But if you want to be compliant. You have to report all your all your transactions. So if you said I'm going to live on Bitcoin, you'll just have a you have this heck of a Schedule D, which is where you put capital gains. Now there's companies that will take care of it for you. You can go to this company and say, okay, here's my wallets and my and um, the there's uh, companies that facilitate this, like Coinbase, right? And you know, so you don't have to deal deal with it. And it's like you, you, you go to this company and say, well, here's, here's my information. And they'll run a report and say, here's your gains and losses attached that to your tax return. And you're, and you're, uh, uh, yeah. Coinbase has a very easy thing. You just, it's one button, you click it and it gives you that information. Yeah. And, and, and then you report it, you know, the gains and losses. I mean, there's, you can get into real fine points about it. And then there's other, there's a company called Node 40, uh, and there's a couple others that do it. And they'll each tell you a story about why they're better. But, you know, um, so so essentially uh, virtual currency isn't tax fairy dust. The, the one thing that I found really intriguing about the ruling, though, was they said for real world transactions. OK, because the first time I wrote about virtual currency was in 2009, which is about when Bitcoin. Well, what I was writing about was World of Warcraft gold, okay, and uh, Linden dollars or Lindens, um, because uh, you could, you know, you violated the terms of service, but you could buy and sell the um, the gold that you earned. I bought World of Warcraft gold many yeah. times. Well, well, Just for those who don't know, World of Warcraft is the biggest massively multiplayer online role playing game that's ever been existed in human history uh kind of dwindled now but it's still around it's been around for almost 20 years and the in-world currency of this video game is gold silver copper pieces and there were huge kind of out of the world of warcraft circuit markets that would sell the gold for real dollars. So it essentially was like buying time. It takes you a certain amount of time to get a certain amount of gold in game. You could pay $100 to one of these companies that farms gold, and they would send your character gold in the game for your real money. And this also has been done time and time again in a bunch of different video games with uh, certain special items, plots of land, um, all kinds of stuff. And now we're just starting to see it 
the we're starting to see the blockchain kind of move into that area and essentially that's what nfts are as well so let me ask you this do you hold any cryptocurrency or do you have any nfts no no uh, zero zero actually though I've, I've got my son looking into uh making an nft out of some of my intellectual property to see if we get the money for it that's <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's, I've, I've been dipping my toe into selling NFTs as well. Some, I make a bunch of memes and stuff that are bachelor related and, uh, I've sold a few of those. It's been an interesting experience. I, I'm not like making $69 million like people or anything, but I'm just kind of, you know, doing it to teach myself basically how this marketplace works. What even are NFTs, all that kind of stuff. You've sold some? Yeah, I've sold a few. Yeah. You get any money for them or? Yeah. Ethereum. I, I do hold cryptocurrency yeah. because okay. I think that eventually all money is going to be purely digital. Even dollars, euros, all yeah. global governmental currencies will have to become purely digital. And I think, this is just kind of my prediction, that they're going to be traded globally for services and products that those countries produce or sell online. So like if the United States, for example for sake of argument, wants to sell military weapons to some other country, that country is going to have to pay us in like USA coin or whatever. And eventually, like every currency has to become digital. Well, and I think Bitcoin... Is. What's that? I mean, it, all, it pretty much already is to a significant extent. Yeah. We're definitely living in a, in a kind of fiat currency world at this point. No currency is really attached to like a commodity anymore or anything like that. Right. But, but, but the other thing is, is in most, most of the transactions are, 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 are digital. Like I, I looked it up a while ago. It's like where Bitcoin is uh, compared to like $1 bills and where it is. And, you know, it's like there's more than $1. I forget. I think up to 20s or so. When, when I looked at it, it's prob probably more now. Um, but what's 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 intriguing is I, I was looking at a coinmarketcap.com. If you you know that that lists all the you know I think it's like four thousand uh, coins or over four thousand, and the Bitcoin is the one with the highest market cap. But then there's another one um, that has more twenty-four hour transactions, um, and it's and. The reason that it does is because it's linked to the U.S. dollar. It's worth a dollar. I I foresee it being something like in the future, Bitcoin and Ethereum seem very likely to me to be kind of like the hundred and the twenty dollar bill of the future, and governmental economies like the USA coin will probably be like the five dollar bill or the one dollar bill, something along those lines. But I think Bitcoin is going to be where like global wealth is stored in Bitcoin. Yeah, t Tether. Tether. It, oh, right. Yeah. Tether has. So it has twice as much. It's its market cap is um, only 44 billion. So, so when will you get into cryptocurrency? What yeah. is stopping you from getting it? I, I don't know. You know, when I actually doing it as opposed to using some sort of um, point point based thing, actually have my own offer. Figuring it out that that's kind of a little bit of a bar that's kind of a little bit of a barrier to me, and um, right now probably when I have to. Uh, but right now, if I may, you don't have to right now. You are going to have to in probably ten years or something, yeah. especially as everything goes digital. I, I in the article that you wrote, you mentioned um, 
that cryptocurrency has a pseudo anonymity attached to any purchases that you might be making, whereas cash has real anonymity. Yeah. But the difference is you can't buy anything on Amazon for cash. Right. So it's like we're headed that direction. Yeah. I don't, especially during the pandemic, like I don't go anywhere to buy anything. It all comes to my front door. And all of that, I'm using whatever dollars are at this point, you know, but certainly all digitally. It's just like a credit card number. But, you know, I was looking at coinmarketcap.com uh, and there's, there's 99 currencies with uh, uh, a market cap over uh, a billion. And there's 429 with a market cap over 100 million. So, <laughs> and, and, then and those are all going to shake out to be used for different things, I think. I mean, some will fall by the wayside, but certainly there is this new kind of emerging market for there's, I guess you call these video games if you want, but they're not really. They're virtual worlds like Decentraland is right. one. There's one called The Sandbox. And each of these worlds has a finite amount of real estate that can be purchased by, you know, players or whatever your avatar in the game. Uh, for that world's currency, just like World of Warcraft gold, basically. But those currencies now like are cryptocurrencies. More like Second Life. What's that? Second Life. Yeah, more like Second Life, except the in-game money is also cryptocurrency. So in Second Life, the in-game money is not crypto. It's just like the money in their game that lives on their servers. But like in uh, Decentraland, for example, the cryptocurrency is called Mana. You can buy and trade that as you would Bitcoin or Ethereum, but you can also use it in that game to buy a plot of expensive land or an NFT from somebody or any of the different things that are sold within that world. And I think we're going to start to see more stuff like that rise as we are piecemeal kind of uploading ourselves into a digital world via social media, via NFTs, via like we're talking right now, all finance is basically digital at this point. Money doesn't exist in the real world anymore. It exists or I believe that the real world is the digital world now. And I think the physical world is kind of secondary to it. But as we see more and more of these kinds of things happen, I think cryptocurrencies will start to be used for different processes in the digital world. And they'll each kind of find their niche. You know, I think if somebody did an exchange traded fund that um, uh, invested in the top thousand currencies, say, and and then they, you know, they they managed it so that as 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 they became more valuable, they get more of them and and, and she had it kind of kind of, kind of like that. I think I'd invest in something like that. I, that must exist. I'm sure some hedge fund has that somewhere. They must. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, you, you know, it, it, it might. Uh, I, I, mentioned- I mean, that's that's kind of like once I got into cryptocurrency, that's just kind of what I started doing on my own, making my own little portfolio that is basically that just the top traded cryptocurrencies like and not a lot. I'm not like throwing massive amounts of money into this at all. But, you know, you read these stories about Bitcoin. If you would have invested one hundred dollars in Bitcoin in 2009 when it first came out, you'd have thirty nine million dollars. And so do some of these other cryptocurrencies have that potential? Maybe it's never going to blow up that big, but will it blow up 50 times? Sure. Maybe. Who knows? I, I, read, this, I read this projection and, um, you know, who knows how, 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 how scientific, but they said, okay, if you assume that in the future, 15% of the world's transactions are done in Bitcoin, 
and given the number of, given the number of Bitcoin is limited to, you know, it'll ultimately be less than just less than 21 million. Right. That Bitcoin will be worth $512,000. I, I don't know about, you know, I, I don't know about all the math that went into that or, or anything, but that's, you know, that was, that, that was kind of, kind of the projection because the whole, my the whole problem is, is I don't see it as being that usable as a medium of exchange unless you're going in and out. Um, you, you know, I guess it's a, it's a convenient, it can be a convenient way to transfer money to some places. Like, like if I have a friend in, uh, some obscure country, um, and I got to send, I got to send them some money doing it in Bitcoin can, can work really well compared to what the other methods are. Uh, well, that kind of like philosophically is what cryptocurrency represents. It's a true global financial system, which does not exist now. It, all the financial systems are tied into the countries that make the money. It's kind of not reliable at this point uh, because the prices fluctuate. I mean, that's why you see more transactions in that tether than in Bitcoin. Uh, you know, because uh, it's like with, with, with Bitcoin, if you want to just do transactions, the, the price fluctuation is a little, uh, a little, is a little off-putting. But that'll that'll iron itself out, especially once the last Bitcoin is mined. Once it hits that 21 million cap, I think it's going to become extremely stable. And that's not for decades at this point, but, you know, 20, 30 years from now, Bitcoin's going to become exceedingly stable. And I think it will be the primary way that, that um, people transfer large amounts of whatever you want to call money at that point. So you, you, when you're saying specifically Bitcoin, you, you think it's going to keep that edge for, for, for the next yes. 30 years? That is. Because it's at this point, it's just too dominant. I don't think it's like as functional as an Ethereum or something like that. But Ethereum also doesn't potentially have that cap. The fact that there are only going to be 21 million Bitcoins, I think, means it's going to lock in this kind of like, for lack of a better term, a gold standard of value eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I, I worry about the you know, all these, there's got to be all these copies of the blockchain that just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're, mm -hmm. you know, they all, I don't know how many of them there are, but. Uh, but eventually like computational or processing power and storage are not going to be an issue. Quantum computers are like, they're here. In the next 10 years, you're going to see all major corporations, certainly governments are already using them. A lot of universities are tinkering around with them. And once they get to a point where I think right now the biggest quantum computer is 52 qubits, which already puts to shame like IBM's biggest supercomputer. Once those start doubling, quadrupling, multiplying by eight, and I mean, that's all going to come in the next 10 years. Uh, it's just, I don't think people understand what quantum computing means in terms of our ability to process, send, store data. It's going to be revolutionary in a way that, that is... Um, we just haven't seen anything like it. And so I don't think like however big the blockchain can get quantum computing, will be able to handle it pretty easily, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, that's, yeah. Cause it, I, I've heard um, differences of opinion about whether Moore's law is going to uh, uh, keep, keep going. Uh, well, we're already seeing that getting shaved off, but that's traditional processing power. We're talking about like a physical hard disk that uses lasers and magnetic little bumps, either up or down. And that's just about how small can you make the thing that holds the bumps and how fast can you make the laser that spins around it? 
that is starting to reach its limit. But quantum computing is a whole other thing that does, I mean, it doesn't operate on any of that. It's a whole new system of, of uh, computing, basically. It's, 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 you know, it is, it is tempting. I, I probably should look into it, look in, look into it more, but. I mean, if nothing else, you should just get some and sit on it for a while, because if it does, like right now, Bitcoin, I think is at around 60 K a coin. Yeah. And I believe Ethereum is around 2100 or something like that. I mean, this has all happened within the past. I remember buying into Bitcoin maybe like a year and a half ago. It was at $12,000 a coin. And I'm just like, I, I kind of day traded and messed around and you know saw what I could do. But then at a certain point, I became a total convert. I was like, I'm just buying it and holding it. I'm going to put in a little more every month. I'm just going to buy a little more, a little more, treat it basically like a mutual fund, you know? At this point, it's not going anywhere. And even if it does have another big crash, I'm putting more money in at that point because I, I, I just see like we're not going the other way unless governments can really lock down cryptocurrency, which I don't think they can because governments are always slow when it comes to technological stuff. When they try to like regulate the Internet, it's like it's too late, dude. The, the Internet's here. You missed that one. They're missing cryptocurrency as well. They are not going to be able to put this in check in any way in my opinion yeah 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 i, I I'll, I'll definitely I'll, I'll definitely look into it a, look into it a little more but i'm telling you just like have it as your fun little side project put enough money in it that you'll like kind of look at it once a week see what's happening it's for me that's just been fun yeah. just to kind of watch it go up and be like jesus christ this is really happening this is definitely really happening but uh all of that aside let me ask you about this. We talked a little bit about social media. Where do you think that is headed in the next 10 years, 20 years? You're on social media. I'm sure you're aware of the Kardashians and people who have over 100 million Instagram followers, the rise of the influencers, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, it, it is, it's kind of a mystery to me. Like, because, you know, I, I keep on thinking that, that my, tw like my Twitter follow following, some, there'll be like this breakthrough. Uh, you know, but it's instead, it's been pretty much an arithmetic uh, rather than, uh, 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 you know, you know, for, for uh, projection. I mean, I'm, I'm always amazed, you know, obviously um, it, you never got the feedback that you get now um, because somebody could write some column, okay, and it win the Pulitzer Prize, but they didn't really know how many people actually read it. Well, whereas, whereas we get this, we, we get this, we get this constant thing, like, I'll, like I'll write something and it'll, you know, it'll be like, oh, hundred thousand page views. Um, and that, and that's how you get paid. Uh, so it's, 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 it's really, it's really, um, it's really kind of fascinating. Uh, I, I have, I like, I like making some money, but I, I didn't go into it to really make money that, that much. And I haven't like changed. Way I'm doing things uh, in order to make more money, and I find that the more I put into a story, uh, the less it's likely to, uh, the, the the less it's likely to do because it'll it'll tend to be something um, uh, kind kind of kind of obscure. Um, uh, whereas if I if I write about oh uh, how to cash your how, how to cash your uh, Lottery ticket anonymously. That one really did well. So you use your Twitter, your social media, primarily to promote the stuff you're writing. Yeah, that's that's 
Right. Facebook is more, you know, I keep keep track of people. Friends, but, family. Sure. Yeah. I went on, I went on Twitter uh, to, uh, uh, to promote my blog. And, um, Are you on TikTok? No. You know, I, I, I just learned about TikTok because the same person who got me on your show, you know, got me to write about you, told me about the TikTok accountant. You know about that? <laughs> no. No. So I'll tell you what a TikTok accountant is. There was this guy, he's, a, he's an actor, and he did this kind of rap thing um, about how you don't want to, you should tell, I tell people I'm an accountant so that they won't ask me questions about what I, about what I do, because if I say I'm a struggling actor, I get all these questions. So then that transported into this, there's, there's, um, there's another site where, People, uh, everybody, everybody's charging. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it, but that ended up being the go-to place for sex workers. OnlyFans. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and a very small number of them were making a lot of money. Okay, doing that. So what they started, and so the joke became is they'll just, you know, their, their, their mother is like. How are you making all this money? You know, it's like, oh, well, I'm an accountant. Right. <laughs> and, and so TikTok accountant became a, a term for a sex worker on that, uh, on, on that, on that channel. <laughs> no, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I thought you meant it was just some guy giving like accounting tips via TikTok in one minute no, videos, no, which would do well, I feel I like. I wrote about it in. I wrote about it in January, but it actually was a thing. It came it came up over the summer, and then my friend mentioned it to me. It was covered. The only time it broke out, it it broke into the um, accounting world was um, there's a there's a, a really um, kind of snarky website about accounting called Going Concern. Uh, it's really 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 good site, and and they mentioned it, and then and then I uh, then I wrote about it. Only I wrote about it on my. Um, on uh, your tax matters part in my side blog. I didn't, I didn't feel I could put it on Forbes. It didn't seem Forbes worthy. <laughs> <laughs> right. So. so, but you know that TikTok is kind of the emerging social yeah. media platform that's going to eclipse all of the other ones. And that will be the new thing that Gen Z uses. And then after Gen Z, there will be a new one for that generation, so on and so forth. Yeah. Where do you see it headed? What do you think will be after TikTok? Yes. I don't know. No one does. I'm just always curious. As we're watching kind of the progress of humanity march forward, no you know. No one missing in, in, our, in our media uh, media stuff, because you can do some games where you can move around and that type of stuff, but there's no way to send out smell. <laughs> okay. That'll be the next one. It'll have some smell component. Perfect. Yeah. No, <laughs> seriously, that, that's a very important part of our whole sensory apparatus so um you, you know if it, the, i mean the first time it's done it'll be one of those uh you know um, a first person shooter and they'll so all they all they'll need is like gunpowder and burning rubber <laughs> yeah exactly but, but then they'll move on from they'll, they'll move on from there it's i don't know how how you could do it uh you need like canisters or something and then how you manage to clear it. Um, but that, that seems, you know. Eventually, that'll be the chip in the head. You'll be able to program any kind of sensory experience you want into that. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, that would be, that would be a way way to do it. You could, yeah, you could get you could get you could get smell that way, and uh, yeah, just you know, about anything, I guess, huh? Yeah. So let me ask you this: as we're winding down here, I have one kind of longer form question for you, and then two final questions that will be yes, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the longer one is: you've been on planet Earth for sixty nine years. What is the most surprising thing to you about the current state of humanity? Like, is there any problem you thought would be solved by now that is not, or there is there anything that's happened that you never saw coming? Yeah, de- definitely didn't see the internet coming. Um, mm-hmm. You know, actually, the the political uh, situation that we're in, it's it's mainly more the right than the left, but also also the left. You know how how dug in is it, it's the way somebody somebody put it. It's like well. If you ask somebody their opinion on vaccines, okay, you'll be able to then give give, give their opinion on everything else, or or or, or, or like you know, say, well, if somebody if somebody thinks uh, is feels strongly about about gun rights one way or the other, well, you can predict how they feel about abortion and social security, and it's like there are only well, two teams now, and there is no middle ground, and it's it's insane. I mean, but. Part of the craziest thing about that, too, which I would ask you, like, did you ever see something like QAnon coming that not only are we so dug in on these two sociopolitical teams, but that one of them is controlled by radical conspiracy theory that they believe to be true? Well, you know, we had like the John Birch Society, um, you, you know, that, that, that actually uh, Richard Hofstadter uh, wrote a book, came out in the 60s called uh, The Paranoid paranoid school in, in American uh, history. And there's, there's always been that type of crazy paranoia about, uh, about one thing or another uh, uh, going on. And um, when you go back, when you go back to use, you know, when you go back to major cities in say the 1920s, they would have like, you know, 20 newspapers and people would, people would be in their, um, in their, uh, you know, in their bubbles to a, to a, to a significant extent. So crazy conspiracy theories, there's, there's nothing uh, new about them. Um, but the power of that rhetoric has, at least to my knowledge for the first time, caused a mob of people to storm the Capitol building and try to take over the United States government. If QAnon also, QAnon is a lot like, I play, you play Ingress? Uh, I played Pokemon Go, which is the same game basically yeah, as a yeah, Pokemon they, skin. They, you know, they have this they have this backstory, uh, which most most people who play the game don't pay much pay much attention to. But one time I was listening to one of the tapes on the backstory and they say, Yeah, you know, these people think it's a game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a perfect segue into my final two questions. So I just want to say thanks so much for joining me for this conversation. This has been fascinating and extremely helpful in terms of knowing about crypto taxes, where we're headed as a financial, uh, the financial future, I guess, as it's fast approaching. But now I just want to ask you these two simple questions. The final two, just please answer yes or no. Okay. Question number one, are aliens real? Um, I, I don't think I can answer that uh, on, a, okay. on a yes or no basis because it, um, it, it, 
I'd have to get into into a definitional thing. Okay. Okay. Let's get into a definitional thing. Okay, what okay. What do you need help well, for? This well, is a theoretical I think, question. I think it's likely, okay, that there are life forms, including intelligent life forms, somewhere else in the galaxy or or, or the or, or the universe. Okay. I think that's likely. I don't think that there have been enough visits such that we actually require support groups for people who've had alien encounters. But you do think aliens are real? Yeah, in the sense that there's there's probably intelligent life in other places in the uh, universe, yes. I'll take that as a yes. And then question number two, are we living in a simulation? Uh, I, I'd say no. Okay, fair enough. Well, thank you again, Peter, so much for doing this, for taking the time and having this conversation. I have uh, enjoyed it immensely. And hopefully, anytime I'm talking about cryptocurrency now, I will get the tax stuff right. Yeah, yeah, t- just the tax stuff. The the the, the math, I, I can't do. <laughs> I mean, Understood. It's the elliptical curve. How many people know the math? You know, that's involved in, in that stuff. A handful. I, I think most people who trade it, myself included, I don't know the math. I just am watching those numbers go up and I'm yeah kind that, of calculating out in my own head just where things are headed in terms of media, technology, what our society is becoming, how we're doing commerce. The fact that I, for example, have not touched a piece of physical money in about two and a half years. My ATM card at one point expired. I just never renewed it and I have never needed to use it. I don't need cash. Um, So for me, understanding that this is the way the world is going is like cryptocurrency is going to be how we buy everything. Yeah. But once again, thanks so much for doing this. Okay. And uh, have a great rest of your day, man. Take care. Bye-bye. That concludes my conversation with Peter Riley about cryptocurrency, taxes, the future of TikTok what it was like to live through the transition into color television and a wide variety of other subjects. I hope everyone liked it. That was the kickoff of Clues Week. I will be back in 48 short hours with another episode of something. Maybe a twibbon? It may not be. You will have to tune in to find out. And of course, please remember, you have one week left to get your For the Right Reasons shirt, which you can find at bonfire.com slash Game of Roses right now. One week left. Pick up one for yourself. Pick up one for your entire family. Pick up one for every person you know. And before I go, as always, what is the dwab at? It has been 6,959 days without an Asian bachelor. Praise be our beloved game. Clues Week, it's Clues Week. Seven days of clues. Clues Week, it's Clues Week. Now it's just me and you. Seven days of clues. Blues 
creams and serums are made of 70% water, 15% preservatives and emulsifiers, leaving only around 15% for the active ingredients that your skin needs. But luckily now, there's fiber skincare. 15 years ago, the scientists behind fiber skincare started working on nanofibers, which are 500 times smaller than human hair. You know, I I saw that in um, Three Body Problem. Mm. One year ago, they patented a way of wrapping the nanofiber around oil or liquid-based ingredients. This means they can deliver five times the active ingredients compared to creams or serums, as there is no need for water, preservatives, or emulsifiers. The first formulation made with this technology is plant-based, anti-wrinkle. Uh, it's a set of patches that you use over a series of seven days. You just put these on whenever you would apply your serums and your skin is going to feel tighter in 10 seconds. And over the seven-day oh. program, it has been clinically proven to reduce wrinkles by, get this, 19.4%, a very precise percentage. In fact... Mm. They have a tighter skin guarantee. If your skin isn't tighter in seven days, they're going to give you your money back. No questions asked. You get the tighter skin guarantee with this seven-day routine. Tighter skin or your money back. Get a 15% discount code by using the discount code GAME. That's Fiber Skincare. Sweaters, candles, the dreaded bathrobe, unfortunately, Mother's Day gifts can be a little predictable and boring. That's why an Aura Frame is the perfect gift to mix things up this year. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. My mom loves hers. I'm throwing pictures of Skabooli and our cat up there. She's laughing. She's texting me. He's so cute. I wish I could meet him. Cute. It's the next best thing to, to meeting my cat, really. You know, I love that it was so easy to set it up. I've recently learned I'm not good at uh, building things and I need an easy install. And oh. this only takes about two minutes to set up the frame using the Aura app. Aura frames are Wi-Fi connected, come with unlimited storage so you can share as many photos as you want from your phone to your mom's frame. She'll be grateful it's not another sweater and she'll love the frame to see more of you. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A, frames.com. Use code ROSES at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. If you are a wine lover like myself and you got to have it for your bachelor viewing parties, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I found the personalized, the most personalized wine club that has amazing wines and exclusive perks called First Leaf. As a First Leaf member, you get to try new wines and I'm guaranteed to enjoy them because they got to know my unique preferences. I answered a few questions on their website, this quiz about the flavors you like, how often you drink wine, Monday nights, if you prefer red, white, or rosé. And based on these, it gives you this amazing selection of wines tailored just for you. And when you rate those wines, it gets even more tailored, a la, you know, uh, Netflix. Just play into the algorithm. My algorithm got me both rosé and white wine, mm. my favorites, and they were so delicious, and I've gotten to enjoy them with many of my my friends. 
Look, being part of the First Leaf Wine Club also has perks. As a member, you get access to their incredibly helpful wine concierge. So if you want a wine pairing advice or you want to talk about the wines in your box, you can always talk to one of their experts. Plus, you get member-exclusive pricing What's in the box? on every order. <laughs> Join the club today and discover new wines you'll love with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash roses to get your first box. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash roses. Tryfirstleaf.com slash roses. Mm-hmm. 